April 34, 2197, BT. Hello everybody, Sparky here with the wonderful, talented, multi-instrumentalist and composer Eric Drew Feldman. Say hello, Eric. Hello, I just want to clarify one thing you just said was, it sounded like you said Erica Drew Feldman. And I do have a friend that she calls me Erica, but oh. I'd rather keep that under wraps. <laughs> so forget well, I said that, but it's my name is Eric. Let me, uh, let me do that again. <laughs> Eric <laughs> Drew Feldman, and we are sitting in a lovely, if not slightly noisy, little French cafe here in a quiet corner of San Francisco. And, uh, it's a noisy cafe in a quiet corner. It is. And uh, anyway, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So let's talk away. All right. So first, let's start by introducing yourself. Okay. Uh, I, my name is Eric Drew Feldman. I am 63 years old, and I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, I currently and uh, gleefully... Uh, play with the residents. Uh, in my past I've played with such luminaries as Captain Beefheart and the Pixies and PJ Harvey and Snakefinger and I'm sure I'm leaving out somebody but I loved playing with you just as much as any of those. How did you first become aware of the residence? Uh, before I moved to San Francisco, probably around 1979, in uh, I was in LA and somebody gave me this mixtape, and because uh, I was very un- involved with, I knew all this new music was going on, but I was kind of busy. I was in my Beefheart days, and uh, on this mixtape there was uh, various things, and there was music from San Francisco, a lot of it, and I'd been thinking about moving there, but one of the uh, cuts on it, and I can't remember, I think I remember now, I don't know the real name of it, but I think it's, you know, the one where uh, it's a resident song, you know, where they're saying ships are going down. Oh, not available. Not available. I, I was thinking it was either that or Duck Stab. I couldn't remember. And I just found it really beautiful and sad, and I really liked it. And um, and then there was also the spot was on it. And so I made it when I decided to move up there, because I'd always lived in L.A., and part of the thing was because I was seeing a woman at that time that lived in uh, Vancouver. But that was a little too far. But I thought, well, San Francisco get me a little closer for riding the green tortoise or whatever it was called back then to get up to visit. And, uh, so anyway, when I got to uh, San Francisco, I uh, you know ended up in the lower height. Uh, because where I still live today because I was interested in these synthesizers called surge synthesizers and 
the shop was right there, which I ended up living in for quite a while. And um, but I realized that the where the uh, residents were located, which was on the records, was this address, infamous address, four 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 Grove Street. So I thought, oh, that's right down over here, four blocks. So I walked over there and knocked on the door one day, and much to my surprise, somebody answered the door and let me in. And, uh, you know, that was kind of how we introduced it, and they were aware of me, because I think they were acquainted to somewhat with the music of Captain Beefheart. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, we just started having chats, and to be honest, I was kind of sniffing around like saying here I am new dope in town uh, you know exploit me to your fullest and what they did was uh, kind of push me towards snake finger because as I didn't know them but it's be- kind of become aware of later was he had done a couple records with them and I think they kind of wanted him to branch out and do something different and not be so they were trying to push him out of the nest a little bit and so they were kind of pushing him towards somebody else that perhaps he could collaborate and make records with so I went over there to meet the residents but ended up really meeting Snake Ranger. but they were very pleasant guys so we you know kept in touch when did you first start actually working with the residents uh Really, I didn't do any official work with them until, I think it was 2002. And at that time, I'd been doing, the previous couple of years, a lot of touring with uh, Frank Black and and PJ Harvey. And uh, I don't really, you know, it was it's so long ago, but I just remember they said, how would you like to, you know, tour with the residents? And I said, I'm in. And I, they wanted me to do another project before that one, but I wasn't available. But luckily they gave me another chance, and it turned out to be Demon's Dance Alone. But it was really just to, to play live, which I really enjoy doing, but I'd much rather be part of the uh, recording process. Just, put, you know in every corner sort of <laughs> so on that note describe your current involvement with the residents um, well that started on a similar notice in, in 2002 or 2001 or whatever when they actually called me they said uh, I was sort of given this spiel that uh Charles Bobuck was kind of kind of getting through with touring and he didn't really want to do that anymore and would I be uh, you know interested in doing that and interestingly my fascination over the years with the residents though I didn't know it at the beginning had a lot to do with the work of Mr. Hardy Fox and so I was sort of slightly disappointed that 
he wouldn't be part of what I was doing. I'd be, you know, kind of doing what, replacing him in a sense. Yeah. And uh, now he's made it very clear that it was, you know, which was not up to me, but there was always room for him if he wanted to do something. And on, for like half of that touring, but he, it ended up he was still touring. Uh, he was like doing other things like stage sort of setup and lights and all this stuff on the first half of the Demon's Dance Alone shows. And I quite enjoyed doing that. Well, I liked the result. It was my first experience with playing incognito and it's never particularly that much fun doing that. It just, you know, it's it's a little claustrophobic and all that. And, uh, but, uh, and then we did that and then I, for whatever reasons, after that tour, and I now know that that tour is considered a pretty high mark in their history, you know, and something to like a lot of people. And, but I didn't know that then. I didn't have the history thing. And whatever their next project was, I was not, you know, asked to do it. And everything had seemed pleasant. And when I saw them again next, you know, like six months later or a year later, and I was kind of kidding, but I said, well, I was sorry that I was fired, you know, because <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And they, they both kind of frowned at me. Like, they didn't get it as a joke, and they said, that's not what it's about, you know. But I know they were they were really working on making things smaller, and yeah. I think they had probably decided that it was more cost-efficient to have... Charles Bobuck. ...doing what he always did, was, you know, being up on stage and playing some form of synthesizers. And, um, and then it went on till... I'm going to guess it was about 2015. And we had this sort of same meeting with the three of us. And they were kind of explaining what they'd been up to for the last couple of years. And, and uh, you know, wanted me to, to do it. And I said, I think I can do that now for a while. And I said, you know, I would love it. Uh, but, you know, just know that it's okay if you want to fire me again, <laughs> it's quite all right. I won't take it personally. <laughs> Charles Bobak, adamant that he really didn't want to do it anymore. And um, in terms of going on tour, and uh, so pretty much that's how, you know that's how that started, and that we were doing a. Um, that was called Shadowland and that had started with Charles Bobak had been going for a while <coughs> but I got into about a year of it and when once I did it and felt in and saw what it was required of me to do I kind of went I kind of saw what Charles Bobak was doing and I went well, I think I could do, I could do it my way. It would be a little different, and it would be more interesting to me. And I meant no resistance from, uh, from uh, Randy Rose or Bob. And uh, 
you know, we just started, we, it just kind of went from there. And then the next thing after that was, I guess, talking about making a record that became Intruders. And, and then we, you know, after, somewhere during that or before it, I, you know, I'm really bad on timelines. But we also started, you know, we did a show of a bunch of uh, new old songs, you know, uh, and it was, that was called uh, In Between Dreams. And so at least I got to approach that, that uh, version of the live residence with an open slate. And, kind of figure out for myself what what I should do so and then you know I was really pleased that you know I was asked to co-produce and you know record and contribute to the next Residence record I think I did this one song you know Randy Rose called me one day and said hey I have to you know the residents have to do this song for this artist in France you know and he's got an ex- exhibit at the Pompidou or something and uh, you know I've got a I've sort of got a song here it was a song called Doors and uh, you know he sent me a demo of it and you know I got some multi-tracks and, of it and re- you know saved a little bit of it and re-recorded it and it was a blast it sounded uh you know, and he liked it, and we sent it to this guy. And so we were kind of on the way, and then the next thing was starting to do songs for him uh, that became uh, Intruders. So speaking of Intruders, um, this is a very unique album, and on it we hear... Oh, one, sorry. Of course. Here's my... Uh, and then we'll go there. But I left. I knew there was something like, oh, this is too pat. There was a record in between that was called uh, The Ghost of Hope. That is correct. Because I was thinking, like, I know I've done more than just <laughs> Intruders to me is still current almost. And uh, even though it's been done for almost a year, um, Ghost of Hope, which some of the tracks had been started by, uh, you know. I mean, they were all kind of started by Randy Rose, Charles Bobuck had worked on some of them, and and some he hadn't. And so, I was still kind of trying to wasn't sure of my my ground and what the what the parameters were. wasn't stepping on somebody's feet and blah blah blah. But I could pretty much tell by then Charles Bobuck interested in being part of it. So. But we managed to get a record done. And a and great one of that. I, I, I thought it was really interesting. I realized that it's not... I think a lot of people are... I don't know. I don't know how much people really liked it, but I think it's really good. <laughs> you know, it's really tone poemy and and I think the, you know, the idea of the, you know, lyrics you're going to call them that are all from old newspaper accounts is you know it's pretty brilliant and it's uh there's certainly nothing else like it out there yeah and so and musically it's a really unique album it kind of kind of goes 
takes you on a train ride, so to speak. Yeah. It kind of hits numerous, uh, numerous genres, and it still stays a little more period at the same time, and, but still being very ghostly and spooky like only the residents can do. Which is a place where, in my own way, I kind of live, too. Uh, you know, and slightly down dark caves and stuff. So, uh, you know, and I found it really fun to kind of, you know, butt heads with some of Charles Bobak tracks and, you know, to figure out what was important. And I was adding things on them. And, it, you know, at the beginning I was like, oh, is this okay? Is, I was afraid it's just like putting a, mes- a mustache on the Mona Lisa or something. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, nobody, uh, nobody complained, you know. So, uh, you know, we just continued on, and I real... That's when I kind of realized, yeah. Charles Bobak. He's sort of, you know, in his mind, he's just moved on. And uh, so it was okay. I was just really... At first I was trying to deal with both of them, and then I was just doing it. Randy Rose. So, on Intruders, we hear familiar voice, we hear very familiar guitar, but everything else sounds very fresh and new. Um, what was your role, and how did you contribute in the creation of Intruders? Well, only in the sense that I didn't have any other than some you know, fairly rough demos uh, from uh, from Randy Rose. Uh, the Charles Bobak. The element was completely not non-existent at this point, so it was more open, and I felt more confident in this world. So, and I also listened, and you know, just judging from the past uh, on numerous records of theirs, they always had guest uh, you know players and I was always you know kind of going not that it really matters but trying to find out like who am I in this am I am I a resident or am I a guest player and because uh, you know they always made jokes out of it but they were happy to you know as they put it I always think it was kind of a joke but it exploit my presence like you know I said at least 10 or 15 more people will know who you are you know and uh, and you know and and therefore guests I just knew some of the musicians that I know that uh, I thought could be part of this and uh, you know literally it's just I always like the sound of the female vocals on some of their songs. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've always found such unique and powerful female vocals yeah. going back from the very beginning. Sure. And I'm never sure now, you know, exactly whose voice was who. I mean, I know Lori Amott was on things. And yeah. I was familiar with her, but I don't know which voices she were. I always thought some of them were, but I don't know that, was uh, this, she was a wife. Right, of, Dan. Uh, name resident wife, and I always just went. That must be resident wife singing, you know. But I don't know. You know, they didn't really talk about it. And then I, for a long time, I before even the residents, I was a 
Carlo Fabrizio fan, and I, she was a friend around town. And uh, but anyway, I just incredibly talented lady. Yes, you know, very impressive, uh, intimidatingly talented, and uh, so that was it. But you know, just. Uh, so along the lines of new collaborators, I believe that you were in charge of bringing on Savannah? Yeah, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's a, a young woman around town. She's from a woman, uh, from a, a band called uh, Everyone is Dirty, and uh, who I had just become a, uh, acquainted with them because I went to look at a possible studio to record for me in projects, and they happen to be anybody that's kind of looked at studios or been recording in a studio, part of the thing you have to put up with is somebody coming while you're working and saying, you know, they say, oh, is it okay if somebody walks around in here for 15 or 20 minutes? <laughs> and some people are like, get it, and some people are like, you know, it breaks the flow, so it depends what they're doing, but they were very friendly and they were recording in there. and I. I said, can I just hear what you're working on? And I really enjoyed it and kind of, uh, I think, was originally thinking of maybe there's a place for, you know, I would like thinking like, hmm, I wouldn't mind producing this and being involved in it musically. It seemed fresh and fun, but um, I don't know. It took years. I mean, that was like five or six years ago, I think. But after, But after a few years ago, after a few years went by, uh, I don't know. I just found myself having phone calls, and I, I met Sivan in here a couple times, just talking in this in this very cafe, this very cafe, now. in this very table, in this <laughs> secluded corner. I was drinking out of this cup, the same cup of water, yeah, <laughs> or vodka, or gin, yeah. <laughs> and you know, we just talked, and uh, she started coming by the house, and we recorded a few things together, and we're entertaining the idea of doing a little project together. We've already given it a name. And uh, so anyway, we, uh, you know, I just thought, I'll give it a try. She was not really familiar with the resonance. And uh, I asked her to, to sing a song and play a little violin. And the first song we did turned out to be a song called Bobby's Burning Blues. And uh, I was like, Wow, this sounds this sounds totally like the residence and not like anything I've heard. So that you know was the beginning of that, and she ended up playing on I think two more songs on that record. Well, it really kicks the album off with a very strong start. Yeah, I I totally think so. Uh, you know, luckily it's the residence, so you don't. It's not about, like, as we call in the business, front-loading. You know, meaning, like, here's the hits. Cause, though I think the second song, which actually includes Carla singing, which I like to think was my idea, is... Um, uh, she sings, like, just a brilliant operatic voice on it. as a song called uh, Voodoo Doll. And, uh, but anyway, but we didn't record them in order, but in any case, uh, you know, but the record was taking shape, 
And my old cohort is a woman named Lori Hall, who I recorded a couple of records with it as an, in a band called Knife and Fork, and also a different band that we worked in together that was called Ruby Howell uh, more recently. And, uh, and you know, she fit right in. And she kind of worked on a song called Missing Me. And uh, so anyway, so, you know, I was bringing in those people. I knew the person that ended up singing a song. I thought he did a really good job. I'm trying to remember what it's called right now. I know it's the first song that I do, but uh, and it's a guy named Peter Whitehead saying that he's a British gentleman uh, who I kind of know around San Francisco. He's actually a very good tileist. I don't know what the t- word for that is, and he did he had done the tiles in my bathtub around my bathtub. So, but. It, some way similar, I think. And uh, so I can't remember what the song is called, but it doesn't matter. But that's most of the guests on that record. Do you foresee any uh, recollaboration with anyone in the future? Or? Sure. You know, it just depends. You know what you need. Um, I mean, I can tell you right now. There's a guy that I'll. I used to do some collaboration with. Uh, I mean, really just exploiting his talents. There's a guy around town uh, by the name of Ralph Carney, who was a multi-instrumentalist. Kind of could play something interesting on any any instrument you could put in front of him. And he sadly, about a year and a half ago, uh, well, he had moved to Portland and tripped down a flight of stairs and landed on his head and died. So ever since then, besides the tragicness of that, um, he's been, um, you know, I'm really angry with him because I miss him. But when I was like, he was really good at playing like anything. I want a euphonium. I want Hawaiian guitar. I want this or that. And he could he could do something, as he would put it. Like I mean, he could play violin. He'd say, "I have a violin." I never said, I never call myself a violinist. But he could do enough that it was like good in a primitive style that I like better than somebody refined. Yeah. But actually, Sivan is also. Uh, a very good violinist. She's good, and uh, so I introduced that to the sound, you know. And she's very intuitive. You don't have to say much. I played the violin from the fourth to the eighth grade. It was—it's an incredibly difficult instrument to play well. Okay. It, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of talent. I would think so. I do not have that talent. <laughs> I would. The only thing when I first met. Sivan that I thought was interesting is if I would like hum something or say oh play something that's like a harmony to this part you know like most people I know would go over to a piano and figure out the notes but she would just 
pick up her violin and pluck the notes out. You know, just totally by ear. That was her reference point. And so I was like, oh, this is a big-brained person. That's a, that's a trained violinist. Yeah. So, anyway, that's... Uh, so, I, you know, I had to do with that. I think, you know, as I've learned that I think... Randy Rose. Very uh, important in coming up with the concepts. And he knows what he doesn't want. But he's pretty free about it, you know, because they've probably tried anything, depending on who they've become friends with at that particular time. And he's never really... Uh, rejected any particular idea that I've had that way. You know, like, I, I'm not sure that's going to work. You know, he just went, oh yeah, that sounds pretty good. Okay. Well, maybe you start having some bad ideas and you might reject them. Oh, i got plenty of bad ideas, but uh, sometimes on the keyboards or the arrangements, but uh, he was, uh, you know, so it's been pretty smooth that way. I'm kind of I don't meet I don't meet any too much resistance, which sometimes is a little scary. Because, uh, but you know, I've kind of decided since I've been doing this that uh, when I look like I'm staring out into space, I'm just uh, looking into the past or the future. But uh, uh, the residence is a state of mind, and I I think as kind of as is uh, been in um, demonstrated by this album that came out fairly recently called I Am A Resident and at the time you know Randy talking about it Randy got the idea for the next 12 albums in his head and I was kind of like still thinking about oh I've really got to dig into this intruders concept and doing that and you know he was fine and he found somebody else to work on that that I thought did you know a great job and uh, I feel like would have been more of a stretch for me in a way Uh, and I learned some stuff from listening to that for sure but you know I'm not sure if it is a residence record, or, but I kind of think it is, even though it's, it's all guests pretty much, and it's you know, so. exploiting their talents. Yeah, well, exactly, and you know, it's to talk about another one of the ultimate versions of pay to play. Yeah, exactly. But everybody that was on that, you know, paid to have the privilege to have a song of theirs, yeah. or even if it ends up being. But that's what I think became really interesting of it because they had so many inclusions, people wanting to do it. But sometimes people have a 15, 20 second interlude of what they did. And uh, so, you know, like I said, is everyone's a resident. You know, it's like, it's not, you know, so much the, you know, people talk all about the, uh, 
you know, the importance and the mythology and the anonymity. And everything I'm saying here breaks down those walls. But I don't know how much, you know, it's kind of for the, the big fans and it's, you know, they seem to enjoy that and that's, that's fine. Let them, let them have it, but it's not, it was never important to me. People always asked me, you know, back in 1982, uh, when I started playing with Philip and I had a little bit of notoriety then already, they'd always ask me, who are the residents? And I'd say, I, I could tell you, but I wouldn't mean a damn thing to you. They're not people that you know from anywhere. And uh, they're just talented artists. And they'd say, oh, you mean so none of the Beatles are in it and all this stuff. And I would just laugh. And, and then... a really hard time separating the pop from the star from the art of the film. Yeah. And not realizing that they don't matter. They don't, they don't need to be intertwined. I had this whole thing, uh, a little, not monologue, but in an interview that I did for um, uh, The Theory of Obscurity, that in an early cut was sort of the point but I guess it wasn't very fun, was that I said that, I really said that right off. I said, it doesn't matter who the residents are. It's not interesting. What's interesting is what they do. And the cloak of the anonymity, you know, for them makes it easier for them to do it apparently. But uh, I said, is this, that's not what's interesting about what they do is who are they you know they're everybody you know and uh but somehow that didn't they wanted something a little more mystique so that was all cut a little sexier <laughs> yeah and uh because i never saw that cut but i think carla told me that she saw it and thought, thought that was really good uh well what would you say your favorite track off of interiors is do you have one that you found most interesting to work on, or one that's... There's... Se- there's several. Uh, and probably not the ones that you would think. Well, that's even more exciting. Yeah. I think the one called Still Needy was really fun. It's just because... It wasn't really like that at the beginning, but I kind of just realized... I don't know. This is kind of like a some sort of a, a vamp in a jam that's felt really heavy to me and I kind of exploited it for that like I you know just made it kind of like it's just a heavy vamp for the whole thing and then you know there's all these layers of orchestrations that come on it but at the bottom it's just like a really throbbing you know bass and drum beat and all this stuff and uh I tend to know how to do, therefore I take advantage of it, but making those sounds kind of more expanded than they have been previously on residence records. You know, as they would say, as I, you know, a lot of people, at times, including myself, though I'm over it, I realized, you know, everybody said, oh, what's your favorite residence records? And I'd kind of say, oh, it's, you know, fingerprints or uh, 
that other one we mentioned earlier. Not, not available. Not available. Favorite records of uh, you know of mine of theirs, and uh, you know Tales of Two Cities. But you know the good things, I, and I got this from talking Charles to Charles Heavy things, you know. There's a naivety, naivete. That's how you say it. French. Uh, it was never my prized subject in school. Uh, you know, in the to me, in the approach of how they did it. And I'm not sure that I'm even accurate in saying that, but you know, it kind of did. They were just, wow, we have a we have a four track tape recorder or a two track tape recorder, and they figured out how to use it. And nobody told them that you shouldn't do this. Yeah. And what we are blessed with is a great um, uh, a great batch of music. But you know, at some point, then as the technology moved on and the residents, not wanting necessarily to repeat themselves started becoming more a band that was like embracing new technology all the time and with that becomes the good and the bad and um, you know you can't keep pretending to be a non-musician forever once you (coughs) becoming more and more of a sophisticated composer so that's what I think sort of happened with them and uh, so that kind of freed me up for, you know, I always kind of am attracted towards music that's, that's rough, mm-hmm. you know, but not necessarily <coughs> naive. Yeah. So I kind of feel that I can bring that to it in a certain Yeah, the residents from their earliest days have always had very sophisticated compositions. You know, they might not be classically trained musicians, but the ideas, the, the understanding of what sounds good, yeah, be yeah. it to the Western ear or not, that foundation's always been there. Hi, good to see you. Good. So. Um, well, do you know of any future plans for the Intruders concept beyond the initial album? Uh, yeah, yeah. I hope we play in some form or another the songs on an upcoming tour. Though I know the plans, it seems like that's always the thing with the residents. Is I was really pretty excited after Ghost of Hope. And all we did is, in between dreams, we included a couple of songs that we could play from that. And, you know, we're already playing, and then we eventually moved uh, that song I mentioned earlier called Voodoo Doll into the live set. But, uh, Does any of it have to do with the way the songs are composed, that they're not necessarily live performance? Well, hardly any of them are as recorded, but... You know, like that's why you always hear like a song from 25, 30 years ago with the residents that sounds uh, completely different. And it usually, 
usually adheres to some, you know, musical center. Some of the arrangements they were doing with some of the songs, I don't really hear it sometimes. I remember when, for whatever reason, when I came on board, whoever were the, uh, not producers, but the uh, agents for some of the parts of tours apparently had said they really wanted them to play Constantinople and so they worked up a version of it that suited what they were doing then which is fine other than it wasn't going to satisfy somebody that wanted Constantinople as they knew it so when I came on board I tried to say let's just find a way to make this a little closer to what was recorded because I you know I didn't maybe have the same history with it that they might have had of like that they loathe it after 40 years but well, Hardy was also really really good at deconstructing a song and then deconstructing that again and deconstructing it again and again and again and then putting it back together into an almost completely unrecognizable form of what it was right which is great but it's sometimes it's it's not going to help you in, in a live situation where you're trying to do something familiar yeah. kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, if you've ever gone to see Bob Dylan in the last 20 years or 15 years he has he can come out and start singing a song and you're like and then he hits the chorus and you go oh yeah it's that song but you had no idea until he got there you know he's he's completely riffing on something in his own head that is very different you know which I totally respect you know nothing wrong with it but uh, so you know in some ways I suppose we're going to be doing that with some of these songs because we have to take a way of doing something that was you know recorded with multi-tracks galore and little bits and bobs with several people and try to figure out how to play it with three people you know and so that uh, is always that's always the challenge you know sometimes I wish we could manage to have another person or two but I don't really like really big bands but having just a little more of that kind of talent around opens up possibilities yeah so uh, but I don't see it it's hard enough to just get out there and go to a tour and be able to come back not having uh, being in debt <laughs> yeah you don't want to lose money on a tour yeah well is there anything you can tell us about any potential future work that the residents are working on right now well they're working on a project that I'm sure I can tell you about that is a It's kind of a story about a a, uh, a blues singer from the early 70s uh, whose name is, uh, professional name is Diane Dog. And, uh, you know, they plan to release a record of their version of... of uh, several of his songs 
plus a plus a version of well it's it's like an acetate that they found of his music uh, which got them into the idea of doing the project so nobody's ever really heard of him any you know the as far as I understand it the mystique of uh, Diane dog is that he was uh, a big fan of Howlin Wolf and kind of emulated him to some degree and then uh, started rec- got some you know a little bit of money went into a recording studio and you know recorded some sides and uh, somewhere in the near the end of this process uh, Helen Wolf died and uh, Diane Dog just apparently went kind of went crazy and just disappeared and whereabouts remain unknown and all the copies of these records there there was just a copy one copy copy that the residents you know found at a uh, like a garage sale or a flea market and they you know they for 25 cents or 50 cents they bought you know these I think they were 45s and uh, you know uh, you know listened to them and found them really interesting so the residents are going to release those those? release those and then versions of their uh, of their interpretations of those songs that'll be interesting yeah does that have a potential time window as far as when uh, late 2019 or 2020, at least for the uh, for releasing the uh, you know the release of his versions, okay. and then there's a tour that's planned for them. That's why what I was going on saying, things are always behind and ahead of themselves. Uh, I think there was an idea that they should do a. Uh, a tour of playing the album. Oh man, what's wrong with me? What's the one that was re-released on CD as Undisclosed Project? A tour, I think that's going to be a uh, you know two halves with an intermission. With Undisclosed Project, 2019 or 2020, and some dying dog stuff. So these things are always subject to change, but that's, yes. as I understand it now. If, if any other group in the history of <laughs> music that's subject to change, that's the resident. But that's that's what we kind of are working towards right now, is uh, is is making the uh, you know residents versions of uh, Elvin Snow's music and. Uh, We'll see what happens. Well, now we've got some important questions. Uh, I'm an Aries. That was actually the second question. The first <laughs> one is, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? Uh, coffee. Favorite mainstream pop song from any point in time? Oh, come on. I mean, you think that's an, a light. That is really hard for me to... What does pop mean, by the way? But narrow that down. We'll narrow pop down to top 40 radio. 
my favorite song that I ever heard on Top 40 Radio. Um, see, I have so many dozens and hundreds of songs that are just below Top 40 okay, that I love. Okay, let's rephrase this. Favorite guilty pleasure pop song? Something that you've heard that you would never tell anyone that you like. Oh, I'll tell somebody, but but it's you know, but I do feel guilty. I think the first time I ever heard Jumping Jack Flash, the studio version, I was like, whoa! Just the sound of the record is just sizzling. It sounds like it. It sounds like the, there's going to be flames coming off the needle of the 45 to me. So I really loved that. Um, I really love the albums of uh, Jack Bruce. Do you know who that is? I don't know Jack Bruce. Jack Bruce was the a main composer and singer from a band called Cream. Oh, okay. I'm familiar with Cream. Yeah. And uh, right after Cream, he did a few solo records that are... Did he recently pass away? Yeah. Not okay. about... Years fly by now way too fast, so I don't know, but it's like maybe four years ago. And uh, one of my great regrets is I, I did see them when I was about 12 or 13, and the opportunity did arise to fly to New York to see them when they did these. Yeah, and I really wanted to do it and was trying to talk a buddy into it, and he kind of said, Okay, but you know, it was that kind of a project that before you could think about doing it, it was sold out. And the original prices of tickets were probably like $800, so it was always out of my range. And then they were going to be $8,000, so plus a plane ticket to New York. So I bailed. Um, I'm trying to think. There was also a band uh, that I grew up. Because uh, they were sort of in the same neighborhood as me, a band called Spirit that I loved, and their first four albums are amongst you know the closest to my heart. And you know, I learned and have exploited and extracted so much from what they were all doing that I could be sued. And um, And and I'm I'm not the only one, but they actually had an instrumental song on their first record that recently they tried to their heirs tried to sue Led Zeppelin because a lot of people think this that Stairway to Heaven the especially the intro is a direct ripoff from this song. Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been in court and got some lower things and agreed with but then I heard after like three years in the courts it was rejected so but you know they're not they're not free of having liberated songs from blues people and things like that so but they were especially too on tour the very early days of Led Zeppelin they were on tour with Spirit so makes sense so it's not just out of so it's not out of the blue it's not a coincidence yes yes Anyway, this is not necessarily stuff for the uh, podcast, but uh, 
Next question. Do you feel that had the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand been successfully thwarted, World War One would have never happened? Or the tensions in Europe built up to such an extent that it was bound to happen sooner or later and the assassination served more or less as an excuse for these countries to, to declare war? Here's what I think. I think somebody, if you had the ability to time travel and you went back to before that assassination attempt and you swatted a fly that hadn't been swatted in history, that everything could be different. That's enough to make it different. So I think the whole concept um, of time travel is... <laughs> extremely da dangerous and I love to agree with any of that stuff but um, you know it's not particularly original but there's a, a book of the last I think five years or so by Stephen King that's called 112263 and I didn't even know it existed but I went into a cafe in this neighborhood one day for a coffee and they have books in this place that you can you can read and uh, instead of looking at my phone I said I picked up a book that was there and it was this book and you know 25 years ago I read several Stephen King books so I was like oh I haven't here's an old friend that I haven't really been keeping up with and I found it really engrossing and the basic premise of, of that book is is of a guy from modern times that for various reasons is convinced to go back pre- um, pre-Kennedy assassination and try to ch change it and he's successful and being successful comes back and the, 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 the present is not the present that he left and it's so different and so horrible that he's forced to go back again and well, to make sure that, uh, which is so against his grain, but to make sure that Leo Harvey Oswald is successful. It's an interesting premise for a, a yarn. So. Last question. <laughs> Do you believe in aliens? <coughs> I see no reason not to believe in aliens. Um, sure, why would we be... We're just a little speck of sand in this whole thing. I would be be the uh, only speck of sand with what we like to call sentient beings. I think that it just makes sense. You know, uh, I haven't seen true evidence of it. I'm not somebody that's... I've had my UFO experiences to have them proven to not be real you know the, the closest one once I was down in La Jolla California working on a, a soundtrack for a, a play down there and I was asleep one night and I woke up uh, like with a start totally f f like what seems fake but there was the sound of uh, engines in front of uh, outside of my uh, you know, condo windows where I was staying so that if you screamed, you couldn't hear yourself scream. And, uh, and really bright lights flashing. 
and that went on for five minutes or whatever and I was kind of terrified I was like you know sitting you know I was in the bed that I was sleeping in in this place was kind of a mattress on the floor and I sat up and my back was against the wall and had the covers around me and I said oh you know I kind of waited it out and this is the part that made me the next day and then I went back to sleep and what's what always seemed weird to me as I explained this to anybody was why didn't I get up and look outside the window but it was so loud and so terrifying that I think I was just viscerally like couldn't move I was really and then I decided after the fact that it was a dream but I was you know in the theater a couple days later and you know on a break I heard some of the actors sitting around talking about the noise from the a couple of nights before around where the place where we were staying and I kind of went up to them and I said Tuesday night duh. and they said yeah and you know everybody explained their experience which was a variation of mine and I said I think there was something because here's my version of it two you know or the next day or days later there was an article in the local newspaper saying that a naval plane uh, one of these huge planes that carries nothing but fuel that was full got lost in the fog and was flying over this residential area in uh, yeah and they said it was at an altitude of less than a thousand feet and if it was true and I mean if it had happened it would have been one of those accidents that you know so many tens of thousands of people would have been crispified yeah but um, but anyway so that was that so I went okay you know there it goes explained away and it was like on page 19 of the front <laughs> section of the paper you know because I think there were all these people going what did you do that? was that a UFO you know and uh so then the news had to put something out. Yeah, so that, that came well, out. Well, the fears. Yeah, I've never feared about it. You know, I've worked with this guy, Black Francis, a lot. He's written a lot of songs about uh, about UFOs and experiences. And supposedly when he was a baby, his mom and uh, her husband at the time, you know, took him to this thing where there was a a really close sighting and he was there and all this uh, that's the closest they've been able to figure out why he's always had this direct fascination with it but, um, well Eric before I let you go is there anything else you want to tell us anything that you want to plug any uh, upcoming projects you're working on well I'm only going to say is it's only in very early stages and I hope I have some other way to keep you informed of this but myself and the uh, redoubtable uh, Sivan Lion Cub that's a real name uh, that I mentioned earlier we've been doing some collaborations and at this point we've decided to call our project Puff Horse Puff Horse which is uh, a train reference that's a that's an old word for like, you know. In fact, on an old Beefheart song, he says, 
the old puff horse was just pulling through. <laughs> so anyway, it just came to us. We tried about a million names. Because that's, that's, you know, when you decide you're going to start a band or a project, you have to have a name. I've got the best name in the world, of course. Yeah. Well, when Puff Horse comes out with... I'll let you know. You let me know and we'll get it on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or we have a few songs even before it's out. Because we have a couple things started. Um, yeah, I hope we've talked enough about... Uh, the only thing I'm going to do... Here, let's, let's say our goodbyes first. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure for me. Once you get me going, you can't shut me up. So, uh, well, until next time, we really appreciate uh, you hanging with us. Okay, well, thank you much. <laughs>